Welcome to Word on the Street, a weekly podcast from Barclays UK, where our experts help ordinary investors make sense of the latest news and events impacting the world's financial markets. In this monthly Market Insights, Phil Atreid, Head of Investment Consulting, talks to Will Hobbs, Chief Investment Officer, about recent market performance and what the future may hold. To find out about starting your investing journey with Barclays, visit barclays.co.uk forward slash investments. Hello and welcome to this October episode of Monthly Market Insights. I'm Phil Attree, Barclays Head of Investment Consulting. And once again, I'm joined by Will Hobbs, our Chief Investment Officer, as we explore what's been going on in the world of investing. So looking back, it's been a tougher month for investments all round, really. Notable exception of commodity markets. Stocks and bonds have been a little more volatile and most major markets have given up some element of the returns that we've seen year to date. So, Will, what's been the story of the past month? Uh, I mean, there's been no one story, as you know, Phil. It's been a busier month. It's sort of, you know, it's been back from a holiday with a bit of a jar for the world's investors and markets. China, Evergrande, you know, the sort of regulatory story in China, the regulatory tightening. That, that, that's been one kind of big, that's been big news, of course. But I think, you know, more broadly, if you're looking for that one story that characterizes what, what, what's been going on in markets, it's really that investors and central bankers are just a little bit less confident on the outlook for inflation than they were uh, a little bit earlier in the summer. Now, as you know, this kind of this spike in inflationary pressure was long, uh, you know, very much expected, but kind of you know, transitory, temporary. They were the buzzwords that were doing the rounds for uh, investors and central bankers. They still are to a certain degree, but it's less of a spike and more of a quite an elongated hump at the moment. And like I say, the outlook for inflation is a little bit more uncertain. Meanwhile, the central bank community is more visibly looking for opportunities to begin unwinding that epic generosity of the crisis uh, response. Um, so very sensibly, in my opinion, the world's investors have looked to install a little bit of extra compensation in the long end of the bond market, an extra bit of yield to help remunerate would-be lenders for the extra uncertainty um, that we're seeing around inflation. Um, and that, as you know, the sort of bond market is always the 800-pound gorilla in the room, even its snores can shatter windows elsewhere. So, you know, that, that, that move in bond markets has had reverberations across the wider capital markets spectrum. And we have in our portfolios and funds, we've had some welcome, the commodities exposure, diversified commodities exposure has cushioned the blow a bit, which has been very welcome this year. The been a great performer but yeah it's been it's been an interesting month and i picked up you used the word epic there and that feels about right you know just the sheer size of the stimulus make it harder to wean the global economy off of the support that we've seen and i guess that also goes for some of the government spending support that we've seen throughout the world economy that, that we've seen the world economy receive over the last 18 months now because that too is fading in spite of maybe the efforts of of the us right yeah, I mean, I think that's right. I mean, yeah, I mean, I think when we, you know, for context, you've got to start by remembering the kind of jaw-dropping scale of the economic crisis that we've experienced. So for reference, in 2009, regular listeners will not, viewers and listeners will not need reminding. I mean, this was a gigantic global economic heart attack of, you know, at that stage considered historically incredibly notable. But if you look at uh, global GDP contracted in 2009 by 1.7%, if you want to be spuriously precise, it's a little bit less than 1.7%. Go, go, go forward to the last year, um, and it's Nadir on around Good Friday, so the sort of 10th of April 2020, global GDP was down a whopping 20 to 0%. It, it was simply orders of magnitude 
faster, more precipitous than anything uh, we've seen, including the 1930s. You know, so this was really a kind of record-breaking recession. It's also interesting to note, just again, the context for the crisis response is that actually the modern economy may be particularly vulnerable to this kind of pandemic, to the to an economic dislocation from 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 a pandemic relative to you know economies of yesteryear. You know, go back to the Black Death, and it's primarily an agricultural economy. Uh, there, your wealth is really in you know, land per capita. And actually, although the Black Death was, you know, demographically, you know, gigantic human tragedy, you know, between a third and a half of the European population uh, are wiped out, what's left, the people who survived this were obviously enormously rich in land per capita terms. You know, even the great flu 1918, you know, that's the industrial economy. Uh, yes, factories close, but, you know, people still go buying on, you know, still go and buying cars and stuff like that. But you, you go to today and the kind of consumer focused jobs where many of the migrants from from the sort of industrial era, you know, as industrial production has become more efficient, they've moved into these consumer focused, customer facing jobs. They were just impossible to, 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 to continue to do in that area. So that made us very vulnerable. And anyway, the world's central bankers and governments proved to be able to do something about it. And, and, and they did at the high point, just to give you an idea, you know, at the high point, I was reading this statistic in a very good book uh, I was reading over the weekend uh, of the Federal Reserve's QE program. They were buying bonds at a million dollars per second, which just shows you the scale of what was going on. In a few weeks, they'd bought, I think, 5% of a $20 trillion market. So this just, just shows you the scale. But, you know, I think the, the nature of the support needs to be characterized a little bit more as, uh, you know, handrails for the global economy rather than sort of, you know, propping up the entire thing. Uh, and when, you know, the economy has proved to be capable of standing on its own two feet, as, you know, data is increasingly showing, those handrails should no longer be necessary as long as the removal of them, the slow, steady removal of them is gently communicated, gently done. I don't see any reason why it should be a sort of disaster for the world's capital markets and economies. Famous last words. But, you know, it's certainly we're at an in interesting juncture and you raise an interesting point. Quite staggering stimulus, but not, not surprising to see some of that being reined back. But I guess that's also why central bankers are maybe starting to worry about another problem. So not an economy that's too cool or needs heating, but actually a global economy that may end up running a little bit too hot. And you mentioned inflation already. In Europe, we may be staring down the barrel of a winter of energy price discontent. And of course, the supply chain blockages that have driven prices up in many areas seem to be going nowhere fast. So in fact, actually, they may even be getting worse in some mm -hmm. cases. How confident are you, how confident can we be that we're not seeing something a little bit more problematic and permanent in terms of inflationary problems, bro? Oh, well, as we always say, well, not very. That's the answer to that. But I mean, your, your supply chain point is well made. I mean, part of this is that this crisis led to gigantic what's called expenditure switching. So certain services, as we just mentioned, were are impossible or unattractive to consume. So you know, cinema, travel, restaurants, all those kind of things. But spending on those items was diverted to goods people needed to work, you know, and play from home. So electronics, household furniture, stuff like that. Now, this led to giant shifts in global trade patterns. So, you know, Asia, the dominant 
global manufacturing hub, saw export volumes um, increased by 20 percentage points relative to the US and Eurozone in a in very short order. And that, you know, to put that into context, they'd shifted about 1.5 percentage points over the previous five years. So this was another, you know, giant shift in what was going on. Now that resulted in huge snarl ups that we're still working through. And that should still, you know, the expectation, just listening to the experts on this, that should still ebb over the course of the year. So those pressures, you know, that that pressure should should recede a little bit. On the energy side of things, you mentioned there the winter of discontent. There's obviously a lot going on here. But one of the things that's quite interesting here is a drought in China combined with necessarily more restrained coal capacity, coal production, in line with the sort of targeted move away from fossil fuels from China. That's part of the story that's going to make life very tough for uh, for households um, in Europe because China's energy demand, massive energy demand, has been transferred onto other sources of power generation, which again, has created that squeeze um, that we're seeing. However, again, it does look mostly temporary. Uh, but as usual, like I say, you know, confidence should be low here. Inflation is poorly understood. It remains so. There is more uncertainty around the outlook for inflation. I think that's exactly what we are pointing out with regards to the bond market. But reading the broader signs so far, the stuff that we think does mean something with regards to forecasting inflation, you know, there's no, there's not signs yet of sort of, you know, something, stuff to panic about. But I think, you know, the market is right in assuming a slightly more uncertain outlook. Okay, well, so nothing too much to be getting concerned about just right now. And I suppose the final thing you know, I did want to make sure that we touched on with regards to outlook is the potential, I suppose, for another variant, something that must be on, on many people's minds. Yeah, obviously not something that I expect you to have a strong view on the likelihood of. But the question is, you know, whether a more deadly, a more transmissible strain, you know, would it send us back to the beginning of this crisis but maybe in a worse way, you know, with governments and central bankers surely will having fired, you know, m- much of their ammunition. Yeah, Phil, this is definitely something that people are worried about. I, I, I would, I mean, I've, you know, I, I, I hear you on the, you know, the ammunition, but I, I actually think that probably the remaining stores of central bank and government ammunition are still underestimated a bit. That that was the narrative coming into this crisis. Remember that you know central bankers and governments were out of bullets, and that proved to be very different to uh, the reality. Proved very different to the fear. That was one of the things that was quite important. But yes, I agree. And you know, variants are certainly a threat. This is something that the experts warn us of on a regular basis. Now, some will argue that government mandated lockdowns of the like we saw across Europe and much of the world are unlikely to return no matter what the case. Uh, however, I do think that understates the role of private sector confidence, certainly when thinking about the, the, the economy. So the IMF had a, a fascinating go at trying to work out how much of the dramatic reduction in mobility was down to, right at the beginning of the crisis, was down to government mandate versus kind of voluntary social distancing by analysing cell phone data. Now, in rich countries, of the near 20% reduction in mobility that occurred in the 90 days after the first infection, the first recorded infection, uh, only a third can be explained by government lockdown and restrictions on movement, efficient restrictions, uh, official restrictions on movement. The rest is self-directed. So, you know, it shows that these things are a little bit more nuanced than some, some had argued in the first place. Nonetheless, I mean, I think for reassurance, there is no doubt that we're all a bit better equipped now. The technology has improved. 
improved, allowing more flexibility in working arrangements, the efficiency or the, the efficacy of masks and other measures are less questioned now, although still questioned a little bit. But and healthcare capacity should be a little bit less thin. And also, most importantly, I guess, is that we know that vaccines can be relatively quickly. This batch, this new technology, vaccine technology can be relatively quickly updated, you know, the wonders of technology and and, and the adaptiveness of, of humankind. You know, those, as you know, they're the key arguments for long-term investors in many ways. And I think also there are key arguments about, you know, our resilience to sort of future potential waves. And we have seen that in the economic data, actually. You're just getting, you know, the, the, the various waves, including Delta, have had a smaller, ever smaller economic effect in spite of, you know, still very bad health outcomes. Great. And the last point that I think we both agreed we'd want to cover off today was was really sort of a, a back to, to sort of markets, if you like. You know, this crisis last year and, and, and what we've seen unfold since, you know, that finished the third sort of great secular bull market since the Second World War. And it, of course, started back in 2009 after the great financial crisis when valuations were on the floor, as was corporate profitability at the time. And of course, interest rates, though, were considerably higher than they are now. Now, those facts, you know, were vital as the economy proved itself, you know, not to be as terminally ill as many investors thought back then. Our starting point now, though, is a lot less encouraging or certainly feels that way. Profitability possibly feels like it can't go too much higher. Interest rates, as we've mentioned many a time, you know, are at multi-century lows now. And stock market values, they're no longer as attractive. I mean, some would say they're high no matter how you look at it. So have you got anything to say to investors, as we often ask you, that might be worrying about getting invested at this point in time? No, I'd agree. I'd agree with all of that, Phil, to be honest. I mean, yes, the calls for lower expected returns for diversified investment are certainly not a new thing. You and I know that. I remember well, you probably do, the chorus in 2009 and 10, when we were told right at the beginning of that breathtaking bull market you just talked about, and we were told by the, the global commentariat that there was almost no point in investing in stock markets, you know, lost decades lay ahead of us, you know, don't bother. The gloom then was founded on a kind of reflexive pessimism of a soothsayer community bruised by its revealed, uh, very recently revealed lack of prescience. Uh, as with most crises, you know, as you and I know, the great financial crisis was really only predicted by the stopped clock doomongers. But like you say, though, there is a more plausible case for lower returns this time. The starting point certainly argues, argues that way anyway. As usual, though, there are a wide range of potential outcomes around that baseline of lower expected returns. Um, as you and I have discussed a lot, the potential for a a sustained period of industrial or technological change, which we may even be at the start of now, i.e. the fourth industrial revolution, represents a sufficiently plausible and alluring upside scenario uh, for investors. Self-serving, though, this is obviously going to sound, but if there are flatter returns, and I, you know, we still think there'd be inflation beating, even in that lower return um, scenario, so it's still worth getting invested over the long term. Mm-hmm. But in that case, if you are getting flatter returns from just pure market exposure... As we've talked about a lot, that sort of, you know, that exposure you get from just being diversified and accessing the world economy. What you need is to add returns to skill to whatever you can there, like little bits of what's called alpha. And, and we do that two ways. We do it through TAA, tactical asset allocation, where we have dedicated individuals looking for ways to, you know, add value on top of that, but also the manager selection process, you know, outsourced to professionals, scouring the market for mispricings, you know, incentives, so on and so on, at the single asset, the single asset level. Uh, those, you know, if you can add 
if possible, a couple of percentage points a year, maybe even just a bit less than that. You know, that's mega valuable in a world of flatter returns. So we would say that it it, it acts as an incentive to have a, a professional active management approach on top of that core diversified portfolio. And I think that's what we, you know, we're very proud to be able to offer, as you know. Thanks, Will. Insightful as always. And thank you, our listeners and viewers for joining us today. If you would like to hear more from us before the next monthly episode, please do seek out our weekly podcast, Word on the Street, where we share all of our latest views on developments and more. Otherwise, Will and I look forward to being back with you again next month. All investments can fall as well as rise in value, and their past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. This podcast is not a personal investment recommendation.